This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. My guest today is a concept artist, production designer, and illustrator. She is known for solving visual problems in animation and children's books. She designed color for Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, provided illustrations on Henry Selleck's Wendell and Wilde, and illustrated the picture book, The Gardener of Alcatraz. Coming up is my creative, colorful conversation with Jen Ely. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free. You're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La, 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 la. Hi, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. I'm kind of intrigued. You're doing a lot of things that I don't really quite know what they are. <laughs> I can tell from looking at your Instagram and other visuals that you're an amazing artist. You have a very interesting, whimsical comfortable tone in your work, but I'm interested to know how all of that melds into production design. Give me the scoop of how an illustrator infiltrates all the other parts of the arts. <laughs> well, thank you. First of all, appreciate that. It's funny because I never feel that cohesive in what I do. I feel like I'm all over the place. So it's kind of a funny thing to know that like people now go to my website and see like a personality over all of the work. That's always kind of surprising to me, but it, I think it is true. So I started actually as a fine art painter. I did portrait painting, like more realistic stuff. I still do that occasionally and I love that stuff. But as I started getting into the fine art world, it was a lot like, I love this painting, but can you make it in colors that match my couch kind of thing? <laughs> and I don't have a problem with that, but I guess, I guess for me it was like, am I somebody who wakes up in the morning and wants to be totally left alone to go make the thing I want to make? Or am I somebody who wakes up in the morning and like wants to work with other people and that irritation of notes and that kind of thing? And for me, it was it was the latter. So I decided I want to go back and I wanted to work with other people and that I wanted to be somebody who was going to ask me for, to change the colors. I wanted it to be an artist that I could learn from. I went back to school thinking, okay, I, I want to go more toward commercial art, just knowing that about myself. My grandparents worked at the parks at Disney World mm -hmm. in the shops. My grandma worked in a Blizzard Beach like little store and my grandpa sold golf carts to the, the park. And my dad worked for Delta. So we were very poor, but we flew and we could go to Disney for free. So we went to Disney all the time. Okay, okay. And I grew up with the latest movie just because they could get them and was obsessed with it. But because I didn't know anybody who made any of that stuff, I didn't, I guess I never connected that I could do that, that that was a sure. job that you could have. Right. And you were also, by osmosis, taking in those color palettes of all of those kinds of movies. Absolutely. I don't know technically if it was osmosis, I, I have to admit. I think it's both. I do think being surrounded by it is, it gets inside you. It just, you yeah. know, whatever you surround yourself with absolutely gets inside you. But back then they even had like, go to MGM Studios, which is what it used to be called. You could walk through the ink and paint section. So oh. you could like see people working. Right, right. It's not like that anymore. They've kind of made a little museum back there. But like even seeing that, I don't know why it never occurred to me that like I could do that. There was such a gap in there. I think for me, like I had gone to school thinking, well, I make art. So I guess I'm a painter. Like, I don't know. And then when I went to grad school and started getting into commercial stuff, I sort of found a pocket where I went in sequential art program and also animation, also illustration and found that I really, really liked crafting the visuals that go with a narrative. Mm. All of my painting work, even before then, I would do stuff about mythology. So I was just very interested in helping to tell stories with visuals. 
And so once I figured that out, I went to a conference in LA for animation and ended up getting this mentorship with Kathy Altieri, who was the first artist hired with DreamWorks. She did uh, the production design for Prince of Egypt, actually. In working with her, I was able to, to get an internship with Leica, and then I moved out here and... One job kind of led to the next job, led to the next job, and, and now I freelance up here in Portland. I work a lot in stop motion. I do CG. I do 2D. I do anything and everything, mm -hmm. partly because I started in commercials, and there's a small studio up here that used to be connected to Leica, but it's actually the roots of what was Will Vinton Studios. Mm. There was Will Vinton Studios, and then Travis and Phil Knight kind of created Leica out of that. And attached to Leica was Leica House, which does like the M&M's commercial. So I started at Leica when we were doing the box trolls. But then after I left, I ended up working for that commercial side a lot. They separated and now they're called House Special. I feel like that was my, kind of my training ground because they do so many different kinds of projects so quickly. I think that's what made me very diverse. You're two weeks on a coffee creamer. And then two more weeks on a stop motion travel Portland commercial or whatever it is with totally different styles and whatever uh, is going on. So for me, I've always been able to jump into styles, which is super useful if you're working in animation because you want every show, every project has its own look. So right. I was very fit for that. I was very good for that. And being one of the last generations that grew up without computers, I, we had a, we got a computer in our home, I think, when I was 16. And I didn't learn how to use it to make art until I was like 29. Okay. <laughs> I, was, I was a 29-year-old intern at Leica, so I was very uh, old starting. I work well for stop motion because I can sculpt and I can paint. I can do all the traditional stuff and I can physically yeah. make the stuff. And I think understanding that helps me do that. So that's kind of the bulk of my business. But I... I love when the days don't look the same, so I jump all over the place. <laughs> was was Box Trolls your first narrative animation that you worked on? It was my first animation that I worked on, period. Mm. Yeah, I came in in 2012. I was an intern on Box Trolls. They were about halfway through, not halfway through shooting, but halfway through just like the production schedule. Kind of a crazy time. I didn't really have anything to do with art for a while. Like I came in and they were so busy that it was just like, kind of following whoever and learning sure. and picking stuff up. So I learned a ton and uh, it was a great first experience for sure. I'm still really good friends with my first boss, this guy, Kurt Enderley, who was also the art director. So he was art director on Box Trolls, art director on Isle of Dogs, and then he was just co-production designer on Pinocchio. Okay. Oh, so is that partly how that door opened for you then? Partly, but the other person involved in that was Mark Gustafson, who is a longtime director for that company, House Special, that I was talking about. He was the co-director with, with Guillermo on Pinocchio. And we have been working together in commercials for five, six years. I work on many, if not most, of the commercials that he, that he was doing before he did that show. He was actually the animation supervisor for Fantastic Mr. Fox. Oh, I like Incredibly... That one. Yeah, yeah, incredibly talented animator, storyteller, and just all around funny guy. It's a very small world. And my job's so weird because they usually decide who's doing production design, illustration, that kind of thing before I even know the project exists. Mm -hmm. So I mostly get work from people who have worked for me or had a direct referral because it's like a producer and a director in a room going, who do we know who would be a good yeah. fit for this? Yeah. And right, which for the industry, there are certain jobs that way. Which mm -hmm. means that, like, my day, I knew if I hired a director of photography, he was going to take care of everybody underneath him. Like, I wasn't going to personally 
know a gaffer or a grip. Like he was going to say, this is my team, or these are the people that are available now. And and that often happens from a department head or some other part of the leadership. I think in live action too, it moves so much more quickly Mm -hmm. that that is a little more ingrained that it is people have their people. It seems to be, I haven't worked in live action, but that's my impression. So when you're starting out, you're in the situation of Pinocchio, you're doing some color design work. What's the starting place of any show when you're choosing a color palette to set the tone for scenes? What goes through your mind when you start to make suggestions? Just to caveat, I will come back around to this, but obviously with Guillermo, because he is one of those people that has such a specific look, such a specific style, it was obviously very different with him. So it, for me, for that project, it was a lot of researching him and what he does and what he likes. And then he had also come through and said, we're going to work in this range. We're going to do these. That yeah, I kind of had like a shape of things. But I will say in general, color design is two things. In my mind, it's always achieving two goals. And one is practical, logistical you understand what's happening. You can see the main characters. You can focus on them because film moves very quickly. When you look back at Star Wars, why are the stormtroopers white? Because Darth Vader is black and we want to see him. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah he needs to stand very, out. Exactly. So on a very practical level, you're thinking logistics. One other example on, I did the color design for Puss in Boots, the TV show. And Puss is a very small character in fully realized cities and sets, and he's mm. bright orange. So he, he is mostly going to be along bottoms of buildings or running along rooftops. So we would <laughs> keep the details and the colors concentrated around the areas where he would be, and then we would also keep them in cooler tones that would really bump orange. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you, you look at that thing. That's that log- logistical side of, like, clarity, What do I want you to look at? Hierarchy within the frame. So that's kind of the mathy part. But the the thing that color does for you at the end of the day is emotion. Right. What it gives you is feeling. When I do I do conferences, and one of the things I always show is that bathroom scene from The Shining. Because if you look at that in black and white, it's just a bathroom. It's fine. It's two guys standing in a bathroom. What's the problem? And then you turn the (laughs) color on and it's red it's just horrifically upsettingly red and there's something so (laughs) devastating and just like wrong about it but that's such a good example though of like what color does there's this really great kids book called i want my hat back it's by john clausen who was a uh, he started it like as well he worked on Coraline, and he does a bunch of great kids books but this bear is walking through the forest talking to all these animals because he's lost his hat and he can't find it and it's this little red triangle and he's walking through, he's like, have you seen my hat? Have you seen my hat? And each character's like, no, no, no. And then he gets to one and it has the hat on. Yeah. He asked the question and he was a bunny. He says, no, I, don't, I haven't seen it. And so then you turn the page and you see the bear and the whole sheet goes red. And you, it's showing you that he just realized that he was wearing his hat uh, <laughs> and that he lied to him. Right. But it's like little things like that that color can give you of just that jolt or whatever it is to support the story and help you feel what the storyteller wants you to feel in any given moment. It's emotional currency. Yeah, that's a good way to say it. I know I talked to Pete Doctor. They put out, Pixar put out a book with their color 
scenes. Really, it's like a fifty dollars book, but mm-hmm. I have it. it it's amazing. <laughs> no, it's an amazing book it is. because it's very good. it tells you almost what intent each color. If this scene is bathed in yellow or in green, and again, you know this probably as well as anyone that it is. We're creating a jealousy. We're creating a fear. We're creating, you know, some comfort and. Look, that that science is is proven in, you know, a baby painting a baby's room that, you know, it's not pitch black for some reason. But I believe that you could do a baby's room in black and it would be lovely. But and by the way, they haven't developed their it's they see in black and white early on. I think so. It would probably feel more like the womb than any of these other freaky colors. Yeah, totally. And honestly, they have such good design in it, with black rooms these days. Like, there's nothing creepy about them. Like, I think people's minds go to goth, but like, interior design has progressed to a place where, yeah, it's just they do amazing things. But, but regardless, well, let me let they- me start with an apology to the listener. No, <laughs> no, no. From my own standpoint, from having a bias at saying that so so loosely about babies' rooms not being pitch black. The whole reason I even noted it is because what's funny about that is so on one level, the color math and like what the emotion is, is really like so straightforward. You don't have to know a lot to know like, oh, it makes sense that water and blue are calming because you, you would associate that with water or the blue sky or whatever it is. So biologically, we respond well to blue in like a peaceful way biologically red means sex or death right or anger or it's, there's something violent about it. it's intense and we're and we're cued to pick up on it because in a forest surrounded by green or whatever it is when we see a, a little bit of red that's we need to pay attention to that like nature puts red in places on purpose so so some of it is that and we further reinforce it though with our choice of making a stop sign red and anything with an emergency Absolutely. or a fire truck right Absolutely. But at the same time, you can take that and you can bend it around. If you think about like Edward Scissorhands, we think of pastel, eastery kinds of colors as happy, pleasant colors. But when you enter that world and that whole suburb is covered in those pastel uniform colors, and then you see that black castle on the hill, it does something very different. It flips it over. So it's like you follow that logic, but then there are ways you can twist it and turn it and make it what you need it to be, even if it's opposite. Following the logic pattern, but then also breaking it in a surprising way can be mm-hmm. really, really great. Yeah, I like that a lot. I mean, it's, it is interesting that you establish the rules and the boundaries uh, in the form within the narrative of that one piece. Even, even in a single panel piece of artwork, or you do a lot of children's illustration and book illustration, so you must begin to say, what is the tone of this story and what, what do I want people to feel before you even choose the color palette at all? You're, you're talking about the emotion. Yeah, it's it, the emotion, but also like for a lot of that stuff, because I do a lot of work in like nonfiction kind of kids books. And part of that is like, what's the time period? What's the location? What does that feel like? Yeah. If we're talking about Alcatraz in the 30s, San Francisco in the 30s, that has a very specific, if you start to go and, pull your reference, grab all your stuff for that, a pattern already starts to emerge in that. And I'm not yeah. saying that you have to use that, but I think it's wise to at least be aware of it. It gives you a foothold. Like everything for me starts with reference. And as I'm doing that, I'm kind of paring down. I try to not make any blanket decisions too early. I let it 
I let myself find it in finding the other things. So research is a little bit of a marinade. Yes, exactly. A lot of the time I feel a lot more like an editor or curator than anything, especially when I'm doing concept design. I'll put a big pin board of a million different things up and I like to be able to see it all at once so that different things can combine. So I'll do a bunch of sketches and it'll be like this from over here, those two things from over there, that from over there and combine those, see what happens. Do it again. You know what I mean? It's kind of an alchemy of the things I've researched. And you just referenced concept design, which I'm aware of, but let's <laughs> fill the listener in of when somebody calls in a concept designer for a commercial, when somebody wants to begin to figure that part of the puzzle out, a little bit more of what that job description is and what that relationship is to, let's say, the director or the producer. I will tell you, it's wildly different depending on who you ask, because I work up in Portland, Oregon. We do not have, for example, the guild or those things where the roles are really broken down and really specific and all of those things. So I find that when I talk to people who work in LA, we have sort of different takes on that, honestly. First of all, concept art in animation is often called visual development. And all that really means is literally visually developing the story, the sets, the costumes, the characters, a lamppost, whatever it is. So a lot of times what happens is, like I said, producer and director in a room or production designer, art director, whoever it is, they try to choose a concept artist that is going to fit well into the style that they want or the mood, something linked to how they envision the project. And then they bring that person on and It depends on when you get brought into production, but I do a lot of work in development, which means there may not even be a script yet. It might just be an outline. It might just be an idea. Mm -hmm. It might just be, you know, whatever it is. Maybe there are no characters yet. Maybe there's nothing, which happens a lot because in animation, all that stuff has to be pitched before they can put a ton of money into designing everything. So they'll hire somebody on and they'll say, okay, this is generally the world. These are generally the characters. This is kind of how we want it to feel. Here are some things we like some other projects, different looks, art, whatever it is. And then I kind of take all of that. I try and think about what they're saying and what other things I would apply to that. I pull all that together and then I make some sketches of potentially like what that world looks like or what that character looks like. And we kind of narrow in and down until we get a design we're happy with. But you're making choices, but like a vision board of all of these different things whether they're a style or tone or texture or color or environment, and you're able to show them an amalgam of things that allows them to say quickly, yeah, more in this area, less in this area, or we love this. Can you expound on that? Yeah. In the beginning, I got really caught up in trying to give people what I thought they wanted. And what I have since realized is people hire me for what I like, because the most successful work that I make is work that I like. So if I like it, they'll probably like it. So what I try to do is go, okay, if this was my project and I was trying to do this, what would I want it to be? And I try and give them a couple roads they can take. Now, that said, every director is really different. And sometimes you work with people and you kind of know their range. So like Mark, I've worked with Mark Gustafson, the guy I mentioned earlier, a hundred times. And I know he likes things that are a little more offbeat. He likes things that look like they've been lived in, that are dirty, that are a little broken, that kind of thing. But then I also have directors who used to be like 2D animators and love very 
traditional and realistic kind of looking things too. And so you've got to learn how to communicate and how to understand communication when it doesn't always come out in a way that shows you exact, you know, that picture's worth a thousand words thing. People can verbally try to tell you what they want, but you kind of have to look around that and figure out what that actually means. So part of it is literally just like paying a lot of attention to the director and getting a sense of what they respond to. You mentioned earlier on the fly Alcatraz. And so Mm -hmm. I'm going to take you there. (laughs) <laughs> via No, via the fact that you illustrated The Gardener of Alcatraz, uh-huh. which was, it's nonfiction, it's based on a real story. So tell me a little bit about that narrative, the journey, and then how you got teamed up with that book. That was so fascinating. So that story is about, I don't know, for anyone who's visited Alcatraz, and if you haven't, I highly recommend it. They actually have maybe the best, you know, you put the headset on and do the walking tour, I'm usually not that big of a fan of those, but I went with my mom and it it was extraordinary. It was actually really, really fascinating. Plus it's beautiful in one way and obviously devastatingly sad in another, but it's just, it's a very interesting place to visit. Did you think you could swim from the island to San Francisco easily? I do not. I do not think I could. I mean, I guess like life or death steps in and you can do things you wouldn't have thought you could, but like it looked a little intimidating to me, I will say. Okay. (laughs) Maybe in the summer. (laughs) Maybe. Well, but sharks. Oh, my God. Yeah, I don't think so. I know. All right, I didn't mean to decide, but I think everybody gets on the boat and heads over there, and they're like, it's not that far. No, it is far. Square footage in the the sea is very different. (laughs) Like, it's just, swimming is, it takes a lot out of you. Nautical miles, yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah. So even during COVID, they would actually do tours of Alcatraz just for the gardens, because they have these gardens and they're still there and they're absolutely gorgeous. But the way that that was started, it was a, an initiative that they took up to help the inmates have another kind of experience that they hoped would kind of like bring in some gentler <laughs> rehabilitation. Exactly. I love the idea of it. And what's funny about this story so this guy, Elliot Mishner, he went to jail this particular time. I think he had been in jail a couple other times, but for counterfeiting money. And when I was researching the book, you can actually go back and um, the writer, she had done all this research and it was like intake forms of what they said about him when they brought him into the prison. And it's his personality disorder made him totally not able to function in society and basically just wrote him off. Like he was a negative part of society and should be locked up and is not rehabilitable kind of thing. And what's hilarious is he was kind of cozying up to the guards because he wanted to try to escape. And so when this gardening thing came along, like one day he was cleaning up the grounds. They would have to clean up the rubber baseballs they would use in the yard. They would go over the fence sometimes. So they would have the prisoners scour for them and bring them back. And I guess he found a key while he was out doing that one day. And he turned it into the guards with the specific plan of getting them to trust him so that he could get himself in a situation where he could escape. He was very, very smart, this guy. Mm. He would invent things, build things. What happened was they offered him this chance to to work in the gardens and he was planning to escape. He was building something like a, a flotation device out of bits and bobs from the gardening equipment to escape okay, okay. the island. And in doing the gardening, he kind of fell in love with it and abandoned the plan. Wow. Yeah. And he got, he was so enamored with working outside and working with these plants he started making these hybrid flowers. So there are some flowers that exist because of him that he got really close with the warden and the warden's wife, who was a big gardening person as well. She loved to plant roses and that kind of thing. So they started to trust him so much that he would watch their home when they were gone. Things like that. 
and he he ended up getting transferred to a different prison, but he eventually got released and he went on to work in a farm and he wrote back to the warden and he asked to get cuttings of the flowers that he had made so that he could populate them other places. It changed his whole life. I find it really amazing. And did you illustrate the entire book? I did. I did, yeah. And how many panels is that? So that book was... I think it was like 36 pages and then the back matter, which is usually just like little spot illustration kind of things. Some spreads, some spots, whatever it is. Basically, I was approached about that job by the publisher. I have a literary agent who I don't can't remember if she submitted me for it or if they just found me. I don't recall. But they reached out to my agent. We did some negotiating back and forth and they decided they wanted to do it. And I decided I did. So yeah. we jumped into it. It's a very unique business because it's often a birthing process between a writer and an illustrator. There's often this situation where you are paired for the project based on them looking at what you have and discussing what you can do. And it's kind of some cases you're uh, you're on a blind date to start, aren't you? It's an interesting thing because they even tell you, like, if you're an illustrator and author, a lot of times they would prefer that you submit your book without art because they like to pair. They like to put that package together, which is not to say people absolutely pitch with their own art, but just saying like, I think from the publisher's standpoint, they're trying to put a package, the best package they can together to sell it. And the writer may not be the best illustrator for that. And I think in the case of, in the case of Gardner of Alcatraz, it's such an odd looking at that and going, oh, a kid's book about a prison, a prisoner, what are we doing here? I think for them, they just really wanted somebody who could have a tone that you take it seriously. And it is a, a there are some very heavy things in there, but it also can be whimsical and it brings all this light in. And so you want to have that balance. Right. And so I think because I'm a little less sunny <laughs> than, ah, than some typical illustrators, I was a good fit for that. It's funny because we go through we go through these seasons of how I'll say real we get to be with kids. There's this book by this guy, uh, Bruno Bettelheim, that is. Oh, it's one of those books that a lot of people who work in animation end up kind of revisiting at some point, but it's called The Rules of Enchantment. And it's sort of about how children see the world, how they respond to things. And it talks a lot about kids don't see mom who gets me my favorite toy is not the same as mom who won't let me go play with whatever when I want to. Those are two different people almost right. in a kid's brain because they can't put that complex range of emotions together into one entity. So there's almost like a good mom, good mom, bad mom in their brain. I feel like now if you make a movie and somebody has to step out of the theater with their kid because they're crying, that movie's not going to do too well because people aren't going to want to deal with that. But at the same time, it's really healthy and important for kids to understand that they can be scared like that and then it's okay afterward. I used to take my kids, they didn't want to go to any Disney movies because there was always a witch or a Cruella de Vil. They used to be scary. Yeah, and I'd always say to them, but you'll never know if we don't stay till the end. You're only going to see the bad parts. Totally. No resolution. But I just think, I think there's value in uncomfortable emotions. And I think that we are in a weird time period where we have very little room for that. Very little mm. patience for uncomfortable emotions. And I think that's a little bit unfortunate, honestly, because I think you want to prepare people for life. And people can't, kids, no one can avoid going through hard, scary, difficult things. So it's no good putting it off and acting like it doesn't exist because you don't want to have a hard conversation. 
Yeah. Uh, in my opinion, I mean, as a person who doesn't have children and shouldn't tell people how to parent theirs, I, that's how I feel about it. But you know, I am a parent, and I can tell you this: parents make <laughs> mistakes, and also nobody knows the right way. You know, yeah. you do you do your very best, but I do think that I'm from the school of allow them to make mistakes. Let them have an imagination. Like, don't fill in all the blanks. Don't. It's okay. Failure is all part of the of the journey. Everybody doesn't have to be perfect. So, will you tell me a little bit about your illustrating nonfiction picture book called Cactus Queen? Or maybe you're done with it. I didn't write this one. Lori Anderson is the writer of this one, but it's it's actually a really cool story too. So, this one's. Have you ever been to Joshua Tree National Park? I have. It's gorgeous. Yeah. It's yeah. The reason that exists is because a lady named Minerva Hamilton Hoyt, she married uh, when she was pretty young and she grew up in the middle of the country, but they they moved them to California. And she was there, but she kind of missed nature and LA. They were kind of in the LA areas getting bigger and more congested and more and more cars. So she would go out to the desert to just kind of like hear her own thoughts basically. And her husband died, unfortunately, but she was kind of lonely and she also just really liked getting out into that nature. So she would go out there and what she noticed was that the redwood trees and the landscape were changing really drastically. The Joshua trees, they break and they burn really well. So they would use them for fires and they would use them for like fake props for movie sets that needed to break really easily. So they were just ripping these things out of the landscape and they were disappearing. And she was so bothered by it that she started touring a show of desert plants and animals at flower shows. Mm. And then after a while, she actually went to the president. She went and lobbied for them to send out an inspector and declared a national landmark. And it actually didn't work the first time. The first inspector came out and it was he was like, I don't get it. This is ugly. This is not what are we doing? But she got hundreds of people to come and sign and, and activate with her and basically protest about it until they sent out a new inspector and got that place turned into a national park and got it protected. It's very unique. You know, it's one of those mm -hmm. places just like the Grand Canyon or any no number of other natural wonders that is not like any other place in the world. That's what the first inspector didn't understand because he was used to waterfalls and big, beautiful green and trees. And so when he came out there, it's like it's dirt and these weird plants. What are these? That it's so foreign to you. That's why it's special. Just so interesting. But she made such a difference just getting interested in it and getting active with it. It's very, very cool. Have you completed that project or is that still underway? I have completed it, actually. I, I think I made adjustments on one final image like three weeks ago. <laughs> and so now they're kind of like, putting everything together. I got the proofs in the mail not that long ago and, and it looks great. So I, I think we're, we're all set. It comes out in 2024 and I'm super excited about it. What's next on your plate? I have another book that I might be doing with the same publisher, which I'm excited about. I just production designed a five minute short film that I'm really excited about too, but I can't say what it is yet, but it's kind of a, the subject matter is something that I was really excited about. It's a stop motion thing that I did with How Special, the studio I mentioned before. I am kind of always all over the place. Like right now I'm doing this one minute animation about deforestation. It's this company called Everlane that like they take the like corporate guilt money that, that companies pay when they over pollute past what they're allowed. And they take that money and they educate people about deforestation and they also fight against it. So this animation, I'm making everything out of like cardboard and trash, discarded bits, like I'm making sets and stuff that way 
and then these digital characters. It's really, really small. It's like a one-minute thing, and the animation's even kind of minimal. It's almost like between kids' books and animation, actually. So how long, when you're doing one minute of stop-motion animation, how much, <laughs> no, but how much time for the normal person, how much time are, is, is invested in that? It is such a wide range, but uh, so much longer than you might think. So, so hard to say typical, but my reference in stop motion animation is typically 12 frames a second. And that is like, click, make tiny moves on maybe 30 to 50 things in that whole set. Click, make 50 more moves. It's, it's wild. And not, we're not talking about moving just one little hand. We're talking about no. all around, everything going on in the background, on the sides. Down to the costumes they're wearing have entire skeletons and engineering in the cloth so that they can make it look like that character is breathing. <laughs> it is nuts. So a, one, one kind of amazing example, there's a scene in the box trolls. So that's kind of a steampunky movie. I don't know if you've seen it, but there are these three bad guys. And they have this truck. And on that truck, there are 30 moving parts. There's an umbrella and a record player and a teacup and a kettle. And they're shoveling stuff in a fire in the back. And, and fabric is flapping. Three characters riding on it. 30 different things moving on that truck. And they're chasing two or three characters. And another character's looking on. And you've got one animator keeping track. That's wild. Yeah. Like, it's yeah. it's absolutely insane because some things are moving very minimally but that's almost worse because you've got some things moving infinitesimally and some things moving really fast and you've got to keep track of all of that in your head of where all these things have to go and where they've been for you know maybe the shot's only six seconds long but if you think about six seconds broken into 12 it adds up well you gotta have the patience of an iron saint to be oh my gosh i mean and everybody else does too how many people would you say though are you said one animator might be moving all those things, but how many people are standing around because there's also somebody lighting that? So the lighting happens before. People tend to stay off the stages once an animator is in there starting. Uh, they have big strobing lights to let you know, stay off this stage, it's a hot set, because the animator knows exactly where everything, if anything moves, if the deck were to move, the deck is the kind of stage that everything's on. Yeah. They put it, put it like kind of like, bar height a little bit higher because the animator doesn't want to be on the ground. You know, you got to be able to let them in to get there. But it is almost every animation studio I've ever worked in has like a room for animators to like sleep because it's such a grueling kind of thing. So all of that stuff happens before them. So we have the department making the sets. You've got the department designing all the characters in the sets. You've got the puppet department, which is its own entire world because there's so much that goes into that. And that encompasses the hair and the costumes and all of that stuff. And then you've got storyboarders and you've got, in the case of Leica, you have people doing the facial animation digitally, figuring that part out because the faces are printed. So they snap them in and out. Oh, right. So they might, they'll figure out the facial animation and the faces will be ready to go for the animator. And so they're animating mostly the bodies and stuff. And then they click the faces in and out. It's a very elaborate orchestrated symphony of things. And then you also have what's called the puppet hospital because as they're working on these puppets, if something goes wrong, there's a mil they're like they're like machining their own little exoskeletons here for these little guys. So you've got people that have to run in because the because the wire popped through the silicone or whatever it is <laughs> that have to like fix it real quick so they can get back and not ruin the shot. So it's really kind of crazy. Yeah, but like but length that. of time, you might get a few seconds out of an animator 
in a week? I mean, it just depends. It wow. Really depends. Wow. I don't know if I have the patience to do that kind of output. Most no. people don't. <laughs> I would say most people don't. It's uh, I think everybody that I know that works in stop motion at some point has said it's the dumbest way to make a movie. And we all know that, but we love doing it. So we keep doing it. But uh, but it is not smart. How many months were you on Pinocchio? Uh, Pinocchio, I was on for a little over a year, actually. That one was super interesting because I've worked with Mark a ton and because there were a lot of things that would come up where they needed certain things. I did a little bit of design work and a little bit of mix of other things. So I was kind of a, a combo person and I was on a little bit longer than I, than it was scheduled just because of COVID kind of slowed everything down and made everything crazy. But we were able to keep going during COVID. We had people animating in their living rooms. It was kind of insane. It's funny if your <laughs> if your output is two seconds in a week or three seconds in a week, you can kind of be slow and hide your work, I guess. People don't know really if you're. <laughs> I think people know. The, the, the thing is, like in any in anything like that, the people who are in charge of them are people who know the process so intimately that they totally understand what they're asking for. And honestly, most animators that I know love their jobs. <laughs> like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, they're not looking to cut anything out. Like, one of the one of the really fun things that they do is my office when I worked on Pinocchio was right next to the office where the animators would act out their scenes before. So they'll act out their scene and they'll record themselves doing it to give themselves reference. Yeah. So they're kind of, they're actors, you know, as much as anything. And so you would hear them in there, like cracking themselves up and being, doing gymnastics or whatever it is, because they're, you know, they're having a great time. They love what they do. You have to, you would have to absolutely love it to do that job. It's just too all encompassing, I think, in your brain. Yeah. Now, if you were going to give advice to somebody that wanted to get into your business, what kind of qualities would be great to to get into visual development as an artist? Obviously, a, a strong ability to draw, ability to draft. I don't like when the process becomes too mathy, but I also think you need to learn a language before you write poetry, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So fundamentals are really important. You need to understand how to draw before you can do a stylized take. You need to be able to draw that apple before you can go, what does an apple in the box trolls look like as opposed to an apple in Wendell and Wild, which would be very different. So that's the first thing is just getting those basic skills up and then watching a lot of content and not just animation, but certainly a lot of animation, but just Anything where you're inspired by the design, start to ask questions about that. Why do I like this design? What am I seeing here? What are they doing that's making me respond to this? Being really intellectual about that is such a big help. And then honestly, the third thing is really just being able to put up with a lot of rejection and being really good at communication <laughs> because that's just part of it for everyone. That is a good life lesson too. Life is is rejection and communication. So if yeah. you can master that, you're going to have a good, good working opportunity and good relationship. And I talk to students all the time. And what I always tell them is I know that you probably feel like you're going into a whole nother world, leaving school and coming to, you know, what we're calling the real world. But honestly, the people who are sitting around you and like the kind of breakdown of people who take an assignment and go dig way into it and do the best they can. And the person who shows up with the notebook paper they sketched on for five minutes you're going to encounter all the same people. It's the same kind of thing. So being able to show up consistently, answer emails, be polite, like all that basic stuff that you feel like isn't that important actually starts to get really big once the talent playing field is a little bit more level. Talent has value, but not better 
than being a good team player and somebody who's on time and somebody who can be relied to finish the job. I feel like those character things, those low maintenance, that person's going to take care of what they promise has way more value because there's an awful lot of talent out there. I know some artists who are incredible, but that don't get hired because of they're impossible to work with. They don't take notes very well. They don't listen. There's so much you can do in just like, if you want to be in a collaborative space, act like it. That's so much of it. I feel like people, artists don't ask themselves that question enough. Do you want to be collaborative and work with other people or do you not? And it's totally valid if you don't want to. But don't put yourself in a situation where you have to collaborate with other people and you're frustrated all the time. That's not great. That's, <laughs> right. That doesn't make anybody happy. I want to be sure that folks can see some of the work that I saw. And I guess Instagram might be a good place to go. At Ely Jenna. It's E-L-Y-J-E-N-N-A if they want to check out some of that work. And do you also have a website? I do. It's just my name, jenely.com. So J-E-N-N-E-L-Y.com. Okay. They'll get an eyeful. It's really, really fun. <laughs> no, it's 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 really fun when you can see a body of work quickly and go, oh, that's cool. I like that feeling. I like that idea. I feel like that's one of the great breakthroughs for visual folks is that there is a place you don't have to be toting some big portfolio under your arm and showing it to one person at a time. Instagram has really given an advantage to people, designers and visual artists. It has demystified so much. And honestly, so there's that aspect, right? Which is amazing. But there's also just the aspect I was talking about earlier. I didn't understand what the jobs even were. There was no visibility into that stuff. And now I feel like if you watch a movie or see a project that you like, you can Google around and you can find that person. You can get a sense of what other kind of work they do, where they started, what their resume is. And you can you can understand what it is. You can piece so much together by that visibility and seeing how these things come together. That is incredible to me. If I had been able to grow up seeing the work of the kind of people who do the kind of stuff that I really love doing now, like I think that would have helped me get here faster, I guess. You know what I mean? It would have helped me understand where I was trying to go. Oh, it's absolutely accelerated. There are so many things tutorially that you can learn on YouTube where you actually can have the world's greatest mentors at your fingertips. And just being able to see what people are making day to day too is is just like, I don't know, there's just something really great. And it's intimidating as well. That's the, the double edge of it. <laughs> I feel like people think that you grow out of that. You don't grow out of that. I look at Instagram, look at whatever, and I half of it is like amazing and inspiring. And then the other half of it is like, what am I doing with my life? I'll never be as good as these people. <laughs> so. Well, as we sign off, maybe you can give me, from an inspired standpoint, what animated movies or movie when you were a kid was the thing where the magic, you can go back to it over and over Oh, there's so many, if I'm honest, but I've, I'll give you two of my absolute favorites. Okay, so first one, I'm going to say Secret of Nim, because that animation, I loved it. I watched it like crazy as a kid, and I still love it, and it's still absolutely gorgeous. And then the other one is not animated, got some hints and puppets in it, but the witches, <laughs> the rolled doll, like the early version with Angelica Houston. I was obsessed and still am obsessed with that version of that movie. So those two things, I think. But I, I was inspired to come to Laika because of Coraline. So that's mm. what brought me out here because I really loved Henry Selleck and I just fell in love with that and, and saw that as the place I wanted to be because of looking at their website and seeing trees made out of popcorn. 
I thought that was absolutely incredible. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you for giving us that jumping off point to look for something inspirational. We appreciate that. It's great having you today. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been fun. Thanks for joining us today. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative with sound editing lovingly provided by Delilah Lovejoy. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp with additional production support and sanity provided by Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun because dot com is just too dot common and dot fun is so much more fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty. Your call to create.